Well, good morning, Pennington Park Church. Hope that you guys are doing well today. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. God, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity that we have to dive into your word, or just to pause and uh, to consider thoughts about you. And Lord, we pray uh, for your help this morning. We pray that you would uh, help us to see things uh, in the Bible, and as we think about you, that we might otherwise miss. Uh, We pray, God, that you'd fill us with an awe and a wonder about all that you are. And God, I pray that you would help us to be satisfied in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, would you uh, turn with me to Psalm uh, 139? Uh, Psalm 139. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18 eventually here this morning. But today marks uh, week three in our series on contentment called Enough. We have been exploring Uh, what I believe to be one of the most elusive virtues in the Christian life as we live in the land of more. And we do live in the land of more because the cultural message all around us is in order for you to be happy, in order for you to be content, you need more. You need better, you need newer goods and experiences and possessions that are just around the corner if you look hard enough. And yet we believe that Christian contentment Uh, offers us something different, offers offers us something much better. And we've actually been looking at this definition. Uh, We unpacked this a little bit last week. We're going to do that more so this morning. But Christian contentment is experiencing joy in God in all circumstances by yielding to his providential and wise plan for my life. Now, in order for us to experience that uh, as a lasting reality and not just something that kind of comes and goes based on our circumstances, we, we need to take another step this morning uh, on our journey in understanding what contentment is all about. And so today, we're going to explore uh, the hard work of identifying root issues that live inside of our hearts that want to rob us of contentment. Okay, we're going we're gonna to spend some time doing that in the beginning here and then finish up by looking at what uh, should source our contentment uh, in the Lord. Uh, a few years ago, I was on a mission trip to Oaxaca, Mexico, and we were in a dangerous part of the city doing evangelism for a few days. And right before we went out into the city, uh, our team leader was coaching us, and, and he was encouraging us. He said, hey, if you have any valuables, they need to remain here where we're staying. You don't want to take them into the city because there are thieves there. And what happens is, especially with tourists, you'll get pickpocketed. Uh, you'll have a, a wallet in your back pocket, and they'll swipe that without you even noticing And so we left a lot of our valuables there. We got to the city, and and we all had kind of the same type of of posture as we were trying to evangelize. We were acutely aware of our surroundings. We were uh, almost on guard. No one was really kind of relaxed in that type of setting. And I'm sure you've been in, in those kinds of scenarios before, but that is the exact kind of posture that you and I need to have as it relates to guarding our contentment and our satisfaction in Christ, that we need to be uh, keenly aware of the surroundings that we live in, and we need to have kind of this, this, this guarded posture towards some of the things that want to creep into our hearts, that want to rob us of contentment in Christ. And I think if we fail to do so, we are going to lose something much worse than just your wallet's. You're going to lose your contentment and your satisfaction in Christ. So let me just maybe share a couple of common thieves that we experience as it relates to our contentment in Christ. Here's thief number one, and that is covetousness. 
covetousness. This is the insatiable desire to have what others have. Okay, this, is, this is more than just that healthy desire uh, to want to improve, want to grow, want to aim for excellence. But this is the desire that, that looks at what someone else has, whether it's their house or their car or uh, their money or their spouse or their kids or their popularity or their body shape, whatever it is. And it's saying within your heart, what I have isn't good enough. I need more, I need something else, and I don't care what I have to do in order to get it. Now, you can identify when covetousness is starting to kind of creep into your heart, when you notice that your thoughts and your desires are almost obsessed with trying to attain something. Maybe you're, you're driving to work, or you're laying in bed at night, or you're getting ready in the morning, and your thoughts and your desires just gravitate towards a certain something. That's when you can kind of notice that covetousness is starting to brew within you. Now, how does covetousness rob us of contentment? Well, when you covet what others have, you are essentially telling God that I'm not content in you. I'm not content, I'm not satisfied in what you have given me because I need something else that you haven't given me, that you've withhold, withheld from me in order to be satisfied, in order to be content in you. Jesus provides a stunning picture of covetousness by telling this story in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. To set up the story, it says that someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrary over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told him a parable, this story, saying that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a challenging story that Jesus shares. Did you notice what happens when covetousness takes root in our hearts? It, it takes the message of more, that, that cultural message that's all around us, and it moves it from just this message out there that we hear, and it moves it into a message that we begin to preach to our own hearts, that we actually believe. Do you notice verse 19? It says, in Jesus' story, the rich man begins to preach to himself. He begins to tell his own soul, if I just have more stuff, then I'll be content. If I just store up enough good things, then I will have the good life. See, the message of more is driven by covetousness, and it will rob you of contentment. Very, very dangerous. But that's not the only thief that we have to be on guard against. Number two is the thief of envy. This is the cousin 
of covetousness. It's when we do not have something and we want it even at the expense of another person. Okay, it's being resentful. It's having uh, displeasure towards someone just because of what they have. Now, again, this could involve anything. This could involve money and possessions and looks, kids, popular, all of those things. But it's a type of jealousy that has more to do with the person who has what, the, what you want rather than what they actually have. Okay, so it's different than covetousness because envy, it's not so much of I want what they have, but I want to be them. All right, someone uh, described uh, envy this way. It's the malice that cannot speak its name, cold-blooded but secret hostility, hidden resentment and spite, all cluster at the center of envy. Envy clouds thought, clobbers generosity, precludes any hope of contentment, and ends in shriveling the heart. This was interesting. It says that of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. And envy is tricky here because envy is something within our hearts. And sometimes when we notice envy is there, we think, oh, I'm just going to manage it. Like it's just going to be in there. It's not doing any harm to anybody else. I'm just going to kind of tame this within me. And yet what the scriptures say is that sins of the heart will eventually come out in your words and your behavior. You cannot manage envy. Envy will come out in actions. Envy does not stay safe. It does not stay put. And when it does come out, it brings with it destructive friends. That's why we are told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander interesting, the list that Peter provides there. It almost feels like they're connected. And that's what happens with sins within our hearts. They get connected with other sins as they come and surface into our own lives. Thirdly, another, I think, common thief as it relates to robbing us of contentment is greed. Greed. Greed is this selfish and excessive desire for more than what's needed or more than what has been uh, earned. And it's usually related to wealth or possessions. It can be related to even pleasure and accomplishments and even more. But this is an insatiable desire for more. A greedy heart never says, that's enough. I'm satisfied. It always wants more. In fact, I think that's a, a good way of identifying greed within our own hearts is when a need has been met or when a desire has been experienced, our immediate thought is, I want more. I want more of that or I want something else. Right? It's never th- satisfied, it's never thankful, it's never filled with gratitude. Psalm 10 verse 3 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Notice what happens when a heart is gripped by greed. There's distance with God, renounces the Lord. See, greed and contentment cannot coexist in the same hearts. And then fourth, another common thief, I'll end with this one here, uh, is pride. We looked at this in week one, but pride declares within their own heart, I deserve better than what God has given me. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 
It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Pride declares, because I'm not happy, because I'm not content, that must mean that God messed up. That means that God's plan for my life is off here. I need to fix it. I need to do something because really I know better than God. Now, there are other thieves we could spend more time on, but I think these are the four most popular ones that we need to be on guard against. But there's kind of another aspect to these four thieves because within each of these, they are intensified uh, when we fall into what I would call the comparison trap or or the, the comparison game. Within the the thief analogy I'm using this morning, the the comparison trap is what lets down our guard and almost invites these thieves into our hearts to rob us of contentment. And you know the comparison trap, right? The comparison trap is when we take our lives and we stack it up against another and we compare and we contrast to see who has the better life, right? It could be with big things like a spouse or, or a child or, or a children's behavior, or it could be small things like popularity or clothing or a certain body shape. Just giving a couple of examples, but parents, have you, ever, uh, have you ever been on a play date with another family and your kids are playing together? You're talking with, with the parents there and your kids misbehave the entire time right? I'm sure you've never been there before, but they're misbehaving and you finally get into the car, you're you're driving home. And have you ever noticed your heart is just filled with this heavy frustration, right? And And it's filled with that frustration, not because your kid's behavior fell short of the gospel, but because your heart was comparing the whole time. Your heart was comparing your kid's behavior with your friend's kid's behavior. And there was a little bit of envy that started to take root in your heart towards your friend's kid's behavior. Or how about at work when a coworker receives a promotion or is praised for their work, for their performance, and you did not receive that. And you notice within your own heart a little bit of resentment that starts to grow towards that person. Like we usually covet in the areas in which we compare ourselves to others the most. Now, just to press this in a little bit more, um, you know, we can, we can rightly say, oh, but, but you have Jesus. That should be enough, right? We, we, we should rightly say that, but we, we tend to say, yeah, yeah, you have Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternity. That should solve that problem, right? That's what we should say. And yet, if we're honest, our hearts this is how tricky this is. Our hearts tends to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have, the immeasurable riches that are in Christ. Because this is what our hearts tend to do. We say, especially in the church, we say, yes, I have Jesus, but so does this other person. So we're even, right? In the comparison game, we're even there. But what I don't have are my kids behaving well. What I don't have is that promotion. What I don't have is my spouse treating me this certain way. And we tend to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have in Christ. And I think this comparison game depletes gospel power from cultivating contentment in our own hearts and lives. 
And look, social media doesn't help in this, does it? <laughs> a lot of good things about social media, but a lot of bad things too. It exasperates the comparison trap because on social media, we tend to only po- post things that are positive, right? The, the things that are going well in our lives. And that's no fault of anybody. That's just kind of what social media is. But what you have to know is that when you are scrolling on social media, your heart is comparing, it's contrasting, it's saying to itself, I don't look that way. I don't have that possession. My spouse doesn't treat me that way. My family doesn't do those things or doesn't behave that way. And we are so prone to looking over our shoulder and demanding from the Lord, all have what they are having. And that is coming about because some of these thieves have come in, they've broken into your hearts, and they are robbing your contentment in Christ. Now, yes, absolutely, there are thieves. There are threats to our contentment in Christ. Yes, we have a real enemy that wants to destroy our resolve to being satisfied in Christ. Yes, you and I face real temptations as we live in this world, as we battle our own flesh. But I truly believe that deep, lasting contentment comes down to the question of what are you looking to source your contentment? What are you looking to source your contentment? Because the reality is, is that coveting and envy and greed and pride do not result in not having something, but they result because you are failing to believe something. That true lasting contentment hinges on what you believe to be true about God who is the true source of contentment. See, discontentment, I believe, always, 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 always comes back. It stems from a small, limiting view of God. It doesn't come from our our circumstances, the comparison trap, the culture around us, our feelings, what we don't have. It always comes back to how we see and how we view God. J.R. Packer challenges us with our view of God, and, and he has a book that's on one of our resource walls called Concise Theology. Highly recommend if you're looking for something uh, over Christmas break to read. But he says this about our view of God. He says, today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, and a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. And all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. Our thoughts of God are not great enough that we fail to reckon with the reality of his limitless wisdom and power. Look, our view of God is so important because we've talked about this each of the last couple of weeks. I think true contentment is a heart issue, not a possession issue. Therefore, the only thing that is powerful enough to change our hearts is seeing the bigness and the glory of God. That's what we need to be after in looking for contentment. We need bigger thoughts about God. And there is no greater passage than Psalm 139, 
to convince us that God must be our source of contentment. So I want to share three aspects of God in Psalm 139 here that I think speak directly into him being our true source of contentment that guards us against these thieves, but also these aspects of God help us to cultivate lasting contentment in our lives. All right, three aspects about God. Uh, Number one, we need to focus on God's divine knowledge, his personal knowledge of us, verses one through six. Let me read this for us. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. Sorry, I hope you guys see this. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now notice in these first couple of verses, the overwhelming emphasis on God. David, the psalmist, references God 12 different times in these first six verses. Unbelievable focus on God. But that's not the only thing that David focuses on. Uh, Even though there's 12 references to God, there are 11 different references to the self, to us. I think what David is doing here is he wants us to focus on our understanding of who we are in light of who God is. David masterfully envelops all that we are inside of who God is. And he does that by explaining God's deep, personal, divine knowledge of us. In fact, this word for knowledge in this psalm, which is mentioned seven different times, is the Hebrew word yada. Yada means something much deeper than just a simple recognition of facts or understanding. Yada means having a deep, personal, intimate knowledge of somebody. It's the word that's used of of knowing the ins and outs of somebody, knowing all that there is about somebody. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, it is the word uh, to describe having sexual relations with somebody. This is the word that David uses to describe God's knowledge of you and of me. He knows every detail of our lives. He knows, he knows those fears that you have, that you have been unable to share with anybody else. God knows all of your insecurities that are living within your heart that you can't express to other people. God knows all of your secrets that you've kept hidden in your own life and in your own heart. God knows the pain and the burdens that you carry that you feel like no one else would understand. God knows it all, and he knows you better than you know yourself. Look, I think this is so important as we think about contentment, because discontentment tries to convince us that God doesn't really know me, that God, yes, he knows everything, but he doesn't really know me personally And so I need these other things, these other experiences to have that type of intimacy because I don't know that God truly gets me, that he truly understands me. And yet David presses back on that and he says, no, no, we have a God of divine, intimate, precise knowledge of us. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and how we need it because God has an unshakable commitment to supplying all of your needs, not based on some random general plan for your life, but this plan has been meticulously designed 
based on his perfect and intimate knowledge of you. We need this aspect about God if we want true, lasting contentment. God knows us. The second thing, though, about God that we learn in this passage, verses 7 through 12, is God's all-encompassing presence or God's inescapable presence. This is huge in developing true, lasting contentment in our lives. Verses 7 through 12 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David says, there's nowhere I can go that can escape your presence. Your presence is everywhere. He says, the heavens, the grave, the sea, there is no escaping God. He even highlights darkness in verses 11 and 12, which symbolizes the realm of uncertainty. This, this uncertain um, experience that we've all had in 2020, this is what darkness refers to. Even darkness refers to fear and says that's not even off limits to God's loving, powerful presence. Like, I love this. This is so important to know about God because, again, discontentment convinces us that attaining a possession or a thing or an experience will be closer to us than God, that God is up in the heavens. He's, he's far off. God's distant. God's not near. God's not personal. God's not intimate with you. And by having this thing here or this accomplishment or this relationship, that will create more intimacy than the God of the universe. And yet what David says here, what the psalmist says, is that God is not distant. He is not far off. He is not disengaged from our lives. God is near, and he's closer to us than anything in the world. I think this is so important as we think about even Christmas just right around the corner, as we prepare our hearts, as we uh, participate in Advent, just waiting for Christmas here. We reflect oftentimes on Emmanuel God with us, that we reflect on this reality 2,000 years ago of Jesus coming to us, being near to us, drawing close to humanity. And he did that to show us that God is not intimidated or ashamed of our messiness and the sin that's in our lives. There's nowhere that we can go to escape God. There's nowhere physically we can go. There's nowhere emotionally or spiritually that we can go where God is not there. Look, even, even in those moments of profound loneliness, you have Emmanuel, God with us, who is whispering to our hearts, you are not alone. I'm with you. And I am all that you need. Look, when aloneness tries to create discontentment in our lives, we need to preach this truth to our souls. In times of relational loneliness, where you feel like your relationships have failed you, we need to remind ourselves that God is with us. When you experience emotional loneliness, when you feel like what I'm feeling no one else can relate to, no one else is feeling this, we preach to our souls God is with us. 
when you experience circumstantial loneliness, when you feel like what I'm going through, no one else is going through, no one else can understand this, God is with us. I think this is a huge aspect of finding contentment in God. It is found in his presence. And I love Hebrews chapter 13. It connects this idea. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for or because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Look, we, tr- we take this truth of God's inescapable presence. We rub it deep within our own hearts so that we can experience what David is, ex- is experiencing, is that there's no such thing as aloneness in the Christian life. That God's intimate knowledge of you, God's inescapable, in- inescapable presence is able to minister to us in times of trouble. But thirdly, another aspect about God in this passage I think is really important is God's active providence. God's active providence in verses 13 through 18. We're going to see a lot about God's role as creator. This is an example of his providence in our world. David says this, starting in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and am still with you. We know uh, Psalm 139 affirms the sacredness, the God-givenness of life, including life in the womb. And yet we see God's role as creator here as an example of his active providence. Verse 14 declares how wonderful God's works are. God is active in our universe doing all kinds of things, which speaks exactly to his providence. God's providence means his perfect ability to supply what is needed. See, in terms of God's sovereignty and God's providence, it's God's providence that executes God's sovereign will and purpose in the universe. It's God's providence that provides and sustains and governs the universe by his power. One commentary described it this way, verses 13 through 18 show us that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. When God sees, he sees too. That his seeing is always with a view to doing. That what he patrols, he controls. God's active providence means that there is no such thing as luck, fate, or chance in our world. That God is intimately connected with everything, every moment of every day. That nothing escapes his eye, nothing escapes his sovereign control, his sovereign plan. Even Psalm 135.6 declares that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That God is using everything in the universe through his providence 
to work out his sovereign will, which is for his glory and your good and your joy in Christ. And I firmly believe if we are going to experience lasting contentment, we must rest in God's providence. That we must understand who God is, who is the true source of contentment, that he knows us better than we know ourselves, that God is more capable, he's more powerful to supply what we need than even we are. And through God's inescapable presence, he is constantly reminding us, I am enough, I am enough, I am enough. Look, how reassuring is it to believe that whatever we experience has first passed through the hands of our loving, good, sovereign, all-wise God. So look, whatever happens, whatever is allowed in your life, whatever your lot is, a heart that is content declares it's enough. I, I trust you, God. I trust, I trust that you know what you're doing. I may not love my circumstances right now. I may be losing the comparison trap, but I can find contentment in God because God is all that I need. Look, if this morning you need a little bit more ammunition in finding contentment, if, if the bigness and the glory of God is not enough, then we can simply look to the gospel, can't we? We can look to the, the good news of Jesus Christ to remind ourselves that God is committed to our contentment because in God's all-wise plan, he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, 2,000 years ago, to do something that none of us could have done, that Jesus fulfilled the demands of justice. And that was needed because you and I have sinned. You and I now have consequences. The consequences of our sin is death. And yet it was Jesus who said, I will take their place. I will take their consequences. I will take their penalty. And in God's providence, Jesus got up on a cross. He atoned for our sins. He paid for them in full, rised again three days later so that all who believe and trust in Jesus will experience salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. That, that's how committed God is to our contentment. He gave his only son to make this a reality. But what I love about the generosity of God doesn't stop with giving up his son. But Romans 8 declares, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God's so committed to our contentment. He not only gives us Jesus, but he gives us whatever we need in order to find contentment in him. And I think a heart that is content results in worship and enjoyment of God and not our stuff. I'll close with this picture of a heart that's content from Jeremiah chapter 17. This passage has been ministering to me all year long. It says this, that blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I love this passage because in the year of drought, the tree that is planted by a stream continues to bear fruits. So too is the heart that is content in God. 
A true contentment is not found in perfect circumstances. True contentment is found in trusting in a perfect God with a deep assurance of the goodness of God. Let me read this quote from St. Augustine, and then I'll pray. It says that, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let that be true of us today. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you for your undying commitment to our contentment and satisfaction in you. God, we know that you receive glory when we find joy and delight in you. So God, thank you that you are constantly at work in identifying these thieves in our hearts and and having you to be our source of contentment. God, I pray that you would give us, Lord, open eyes to identifying or covetousness, or envy, greed, or pride, or other things that are wanting to rob our satisfaction in you. And God, I pray that we would replace those things with you, with a big view of you, that you would consume our desires and our delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.